Pancho Villa was a celebrated war hero, a beloved folk icon, and a driving force of the Mexican Revolution. And on July 20, 1923, he was dead. When President Álvaro Obregón appointed Paulino Navarro to find the assassin, Navarro knew that the people of Mexico would settle for nothing less than a fair and just investigation. But Navarro's inquiry cut short when a former revolutionary leader, Jesús Salas Barraza, confessed without ever being questioned or investigated. After he arrested Barraza, Navarro searched his hotel room, what he found stunned him. Documents linked Barraza to Plutarco Elias Calles, the leading candidate in the upcoming presidential election. It appeared that Calles had ordered the assassination and Barraza had been set up to take the fall. Navarro brought this evidence directly to President Obregón, who had enthusiastically endorsed Calles's campaign. Obregón would surely want to know what his chosen candidate had done. Obregón heard out Navarro's case. Then he simply said, I do not want to see these documents. Do whatever you want with them. Later that day, a strange man appeared in Navarro's office. He didn't introduce himself, but he asked Navarro to hand over the documents he'd found in Barraza's hotel room. Just like that, Navarro knew how high this cover-up went. The truth would never be brought to light, and he had nothing to gain from trying. Navarro handed over the evidence, and the strange man left without another word. To this day, the murder of Pancho Villa remains unsolved. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on Mexican Revolutionary General Pancho Villa. Villa was gunned down on the streets of Peral in July 1923 by a band of assassins who have never been identified. However, many people suspect that Villa was killed on the orders of President Álvaro Obregón. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. Last week, we discussed the lives of Pancho Villa and of Álvaro Obregón. The men fought together and then against each other during the Mexican Revolution, which lasted from 1910 to 1920. After a decade of warfare, Villa was forced to retire in defeat. In exchange for his peaceful retirement and a promise that he would never again involve himself in Mexican politics, he was rewarded with a large hacienda called Conatillo. 
But in spite of Via's surrender, he'd made numerous enemies throughout his life, and all of them wanted him dead. On July 20th, 1923, Pancho Villa was passing through the town of Peral on the way home from his godson's baptism. While Villa usually traveled with 50 bodyguards, that day he had just five, plus his secretary. When Villa's Dodge Roadster passed down the street, seven gunmen leapt into position and fired at the car. They killed Villa, his secretary, and four of his five bodyguards. One of Villa's bodyguards, Ramon Contreras, took a shot to the gut, but he managed to push open the car door and run away. Contreras could hear the gunman chasing him. He drew his gun and fired, killing one of his pursuers. Contreras kept running until he reached a river outside of Peral. He crouched under the cover of the brush and tried not to gasp for breath. He was injured, in pain, and he'd just run a long distance. But if these gunmen found him, they'd kill him too. The assassins searched for only a few minutes. They'd already killed their main target. His bodyguards didn't really matter. So they gave up their search, leaving Contreras as the lone survivor of the attack. As for the assassins, they were in no hurry to flee the scene of the crime. According to witness reports, after the gunfire stopped, the assassins gathered at an intersection near where Villa lay dead. The men smoked cigarettes, told each other a few jokes, and then walked out of Peral at a leisurely pace. Clearly, the assassins weren't worried about arrest. And they were right not to be concerned, since they were able to make their slow getaway without any interference. The assassins' behavior led many to believe that Peral's police force was involved in Villa's murder, or at the very least, they were willing to help cover it up. For most of the morning, Contreras was the only one of Villa's men who knew what had happened. The telegraph lines at his hacienda, Canatillo, were down for six hours that morning. While the hacienda's workers went about their day, President Obregón received word of his old rival's death. The information delivered to him was contradictory. First, the head of Peral's telegraph office sent him a message claiming that Villa's bodyguards had turned on him and murdered him. Later that same day, he received a new telegraph with an accurate account of the events. Even before Obregón received the updated telegraph, he had his doubts that Villa's own men would murder him. And his next actions have led many to believe that Obregón himself was responsible for Villa's death. After the first telegram arrived, he ordered his army to march on Villa's home at Canotillo. Officially, Obregón made this call because he wanted to quell any rioting or looting that might break out in the wake of Villa's death. These soldiers were also supposed to gather any evidence that might assist in the investigation into the murder. The workers at Canotillo still had no idea that Villa was dead as federal troops began to surround the hacienda. When they finally received the news, they had only minutes to react before Obregón's troops bore down on them. With the telegraph finally back up and running, one of Villa's men, Alfredo Paz Gutierrez, sent a message to Obregón asking the men to stand down. Gutierrez insisted that Villa's bodyguards were disciplined and skilled enough to defend Canatillo from any rioting or looting on their own. There was no reason for the troops to be there. 
Obregón didn't relent, so Villa's bodyguards took up their own weapons and got ready to defend themselves against what was sure to be a military onslaught. No shots were fired yet, but a tense standoff began with no end in sight. Because they were all busy defending Conatillo, none of Villa's men were able to attend his funeral the next day. During his life, Villa had been an advocate for the poor and had taken good care of the people of Peral. Now, the citizens repaid him with a grand funeral procession. Thousands of locals followed Villa's coffin to the cemetery. Pancho Villa was buried at the municipal cemetery in Peral, not at the cemetery he'd chosen while he was alive. He'd selected the ideal burial plot and already constructed a mausoleum for himself before his death. But now, the state's governor claimed that his chosen cemetery in Chihuahua City had been closed and the burial plot, the one he'd already built a mausoleum on, was no longer available. This did nothing to quell the rumors that the government was involved in the murder. On July 22, 1923, two days after Villa's death, his brother, Hippolito, rode into Canatillo. Born Hippolito Arango, Hippolito had fought in the revolution with his brother and even adopted his brother's chosen surname of Villa. Now, after Pancho Villa's death, Hippolito assumed responsibility for his brother's land as well. The ride was tense as Hippolito passed through the ranks of federal soldiers that were still assembled around the property. They let him pass, but it took a little more convincing to get through the line of Villa's own men. One Canotillo worker, Nicolas Fernandez, had already issued orders that the men shoot anyone trying to enter the hacienda. As Hippolito entered the estate that now belonged to him, he knew that he was taking his life into his own hands. If he couldn't find a way to peacefully resolve tensions with the soldiers outside, his dead brother's home and his legacy might be destroyed in the violence. From the tentative safety of Canotillo, Hippolito exchanged telegrams with President Alvaro Obregón. This seemed to ease the tensions, but Obregón still didn't call his men off. Villa's men didn't move either. A full week passed and no one flinched. Finally, on August 2nd, Obregón ordered his men to withdraw. The 10-day standoff ended without bloodshed. While fighting at Canotillo was averted, more bloodshed lay in the future. Obregón's mishandling of the investigation into Villa's death would sow distrust among his people and color the perception of his presidency. Coming up next, we'll discuss the investigation into Pancho Villa's unsolved murder. Now, back to the story. In the days that followed Pancho Villa's death on July 20, 1923, an all-out gunfight on Villa's hacienda was narrowly averted. The world watched to see how President Álvaro Obregón would handle the investigation into the murder. In the days after Villa's death and funeral, conflict erupted among his surviving family. Villa was a polygamist, and he died with at least three widows and no will specifying who should inherit his property. 
polygamy wasn't legally recognized in Mexico, which made the inheritance procedures a little sticky. President Obregón personally mediated a dispute among the widows, Ostroberta, Luz Carral, and Manuela, all of whom claimed status as Villa's sole heir. To make matters even more complicated, Villa's brother, Hippolito, wanted to keep all of Villa's assets for himself, shutting all three of the wives out of their inheritances entirely. When Ostroberta attempted to seize ownership of Manuela's home and business as a bargaining tactic, Obregón had to intervene. He ruled that because Luz Corral was Villa's first wife, and because polygamy was illegal in Mexico, only Luz Corral had any legal claim to an inheritance. This put an end to the squabbling, at least as far as the government was concerned. In the wake of Villa's death, they had bigger issues to attend to, like finding his assassins. Two of the seven gunmen who'd attacked Villa were killed during the assassination, but that left five surviving men to be identified. Soon, one of those five gunmen was identified as Melitón Losoya. Losoya was the manager of Villa's hacienda, Canatillo. Days before his death, Villa argued with Losoya over his tendency to sell land from the hacienda and pocket the money for himself. Losoya insisted that this behavior was an ordinary part of his management responsibilities. Villa considered it thievery. Just days before the assassination, Villa threatened Losoya, saying that he needed to repay all the money for the stolen land or else. The theory among investigators was that Losoya didn't have the money to repay his debts, and he didn't want to find out what or else meant. So he killed Villa to save himself. But oddly, Losoya was never arrested even after his role in the assassination became public knowledge. This pointed attention to the bigger question, who worked with Lasoya? Who planned the hit? And who was protecting him? It didn't take long for people to begin speculating that President Alvaro Obregón, or the presidential candidate he'd endorsed, Plutarco Elias Calles, had ordered the murder. In a letter to the Secretary of State, U.S. diplomat George Summerlin wrote that he was certain Callas had ordered Villa's death. Shortly after the assassination, Obregón had to make a public statement declaring that his administration had nothing to do with Villa's murder. In the same statement, he assured the public that, quote, the government will make a thorough investigation of the events and endeavor to apprehend the culprits. He didn't stick to his promise. Nine days after Villa's assassination, on July 29, 1923, Obregón received a letter from an unknown sender. This letter claimed that a member of Durango State Legislature, Jesus Salas Barraza, conspired with General Jesus Agustin Castro to murder Pancho Villa. But rather than release the letter to investigators, Obregón hid it away it wouldn't be discovered until years later. About a week later, and roughly three weeks after Villa's death, Obregón received another letter, this time from Barraza himself. It was a confession in which Barraza claimed that he, and he alone, had planned the murder of Pancho Villa. Apart from the sender of that secret anonymous letter, 
no one had considered Barraza a suspect before he confessed. Barraza had once been a minor leader in the Mexican Revolution, but he and Villa had never fought any major battles against one another. He had no reason to want Villa dead. Barraza's confession attempted to address his lack of motive. He wrote that he sought vengeance for the people who lived in his district who'd lost loved ones fighting against Villa. But the letter also claimed that Barraza was confessing in order to save the name of our present government, to put an end to suspicions voiced by the press that some public officials had been intellectual authors of this matter. He insisted that he had worked alone and that his confession should clear Alvaro Obregón and Plutarco Elias Callas of guilt. This bizarre confession only made the two politicians look even more guilty. Many believed Barraza was taking the fall for Villa's real killers, President Obregón and Plutarco Elias Callas, or whichever other government higher-ups he'd worked with. A few days after the government received Barraza's letter, they received yet another anonymous letter. This one claimed that Barraza had taken part in the assassination, but he hadn't worked alone. He had collaborated with General Jesus Agustin Castro and Plutarco Elias Callas. Barraza insisted that this second letter was a fake and that he'd worked alone. Obregón and Callas supported him. They claimed Barraza's confession was accurate the anonymous letters were a hoax, and there was no reason to believe in a government cover-up. Many people, rationally, didn't take the government at its word regarding the lack of a government cover-up. Adding to the suspicion was the fact that, for several days after Obregón received Barraza's confession on August 5th, he openly campaigned for Barraza to remain free. According to Obregón, Barraza was entitled to diplomatic immunity because he was a senator. Unfortunately, that isn't how diplomatic immunity works. Barraza was arrested on August 9th, four days after Obregón received the confession. Throughout questioning and his trial, Barraza always maintained that he'd worked alone, and no other government leaders could be implicated in Villa's death. Barraza was eventually sentenced to 20 years in prison for the murder of Pancho Villa. He served only three months of his sentence before the governor of Chihuahua pardoned him. This, too, added fuel to the rumors that Barraza was just the fall guy for a larger government conspiracy. While the Mexican federal government was content to let matters end with Barraza, internationally, suspicion still swirled. The U.S. Bureau of Investigation, the precursor to the FBI, opened their own investigation. What they found was damning. U.S. undercover agents discovered that after Pancho Villa's murder, Jesus Salas Barraza reported to General Castro and then visited Plutarco Elias Callas at his home. They also learned that Paulino Navarro, the Secret Service agent who arrested Barraza, had found more evidence at Barraza's hotel room, but it had been destroyed before it could be made public. The Bureau of Investigation locked in on Obregón as a likely conspirator, and they found a compelling motive for him to act when he did. Canatillo, the hacienda where Villa lived, had a huge stockpile of weapons. Some arms would have been necessary for Villa's bodyguards, 
but the size of Kanoteo's armory went far beyond what was necessary for self-defense. In July of 1923, one of Obregón's men reported that he believed Villa had received the weapons from another military leader, Adolfo de la Huerta, in preparation for a rebellion. We should note that these weapons weren't discovered by Obregón until after Villa's death. He may have suspected Villa would revolt before the assassination, but those suspicions weren't confirmed until later. But for two warlords with a bloody and brutal personal history, that suspicion may have been enough. The final Bureau of Investigation report concluded that Elias Callas, President Obregón's hopeful successor, had ordered Pancho Villa's murder and had planned every step along the way. According to the BOI, Callas had even helped write Barraza's confession letter. This conclusion was persuasive, but it downplays Obregón's own role in the assassination and the subsequent cover-up. Notably, Meliton Lasoya, one of the gunmen who killed Villa, had been in direct communication with Obregón mere months before Villa's death. On January 2, 1923, Lasoya wrote a letter to Obregón which said only that he had, quote, some matters to discuss. Obregón never confirmed whether or not he took this meeting with Lasoya. Even if he did, it's impossible to say what those matters were that the men discussed. But it was clear that Obregón had a connection to at least one of the gunmen who shot Villa, as well as the only man ever arrested for the assassination, Jesus Salas Barraza. It's impossible to say with certainty whether Pancho Villa was the victim of a government conspiracy, but at the very least, Mexican leaders were willing to look the other way after Villa's death. Barraza was a free man as of 1924. Pancho Villa's other assassins, whoever they were, were never arrested or convicted. But the coast wasn't clear yet for Obregón and Callas. For the past 10 years, every new presidency had been marred by rebellion and warfare. This fear of rebellion was what may have inspired Obregón to order a hit on Pancho Villa. Obregón's fears were confirmed in late 1923, when just before the upcoming election, a former president, Adolfo de la Huerta, staged a rebellion. Obregón's army clashed with Huertas for a full bloody year. In 1924, Obregón emerged victorious on the battlefield, and that same year, his preferred candidate found success at the ballot box. Plutarco Elias Callas succeeded Obregón as president of Mexico. During Callas's presidency, Pancho Villa once more made the news. On February 6, 1926, three years after his death, graveyard employee Juan Amparan was working his shift when he saw something strange at Villa's gravesite. Villa's coffin had been dug up and his head had been removed from his body and stolen. Further investigation showed no signs of forced entry into the graveyard, meaning the thief had climbed the locked gates. Or that the thief was a graveyard employee. Amparan was reluctant to report the theft as he didn't want suspicion to fall upon himself. Authorities initially questioned Jesus Salas Barraza, the man who'd confessed to Villa's murder and who was now free thanks to a pardon. 
The police thought perhaps Barraza had further unfinished business with Villa, but Barraza had an airtight alibi. Police questioned other suspects, including some tourists who'd shown a little too much interest in Pancho Villa's gravesite during their visit. They turned up nothing. To this day, Pancho Villa's head has never been found. Even with Pancho Villa dead and his head permanently spirited away, Caius's presidency faced its share of challenges. Caius sought to limit the power of the Catholic Church, which prior to that point was heavily involved in Mexican politics. Caius was an adherent of the popular new political movement sweeping across the world, communism. Based on communist teachings, Caius believed that a religious public and a socialist public were mutually exclusive. He passed legislation guaranteeing the separation of church and state. But Caius didn't just want to separate the federal government from the church. He wanted to weaken their influence politically and culturally. He made it illegal for priests to wear their vestments outside of churches, seized church-owned land, and attempted to limit the number of priests who could work in each geographic region of Mexico. Fighting broke out when Cristeros, or Catholic loyalists, staged nonviolent protests that escalated into skirmishes. The Cristero War, which raged from 1926 to 1928, saw open fighting between Catholics and Caius loyalists. Tensions were raw when, in 1927, former President Obregón decided to run for re-election. There was just one problem. The Mexican Constitution forbade presidents from running for re-election. Luckily, Obregón had the support of powerful allies, including the sitting President Callas. With Callas's support, Congress defined re-election to refer only to consecutive terms. Since Obregón had taken a term off, he was free to run again. Obregón launched his presidential campaign, and in July of 1928, he won. Obregón was now the president of Mexico for the second time. On July 17, 1928, days after his electoral victory, but before he could take the oath of office, Obregón attended a banquet in his honor at a restaurant in San Angel. The banquet had a celebratory tone with plenty of food, music, and caricature artists for entertainment. One of those artists was a man named José de León Toral. He approached Obregón's table and handed the president an unfinished pencil sketch of himself. Obregón complimented Toral on his skill and invited him to sit at his table and finish the sketch. Toral reached into his jacket. He withdrew not a pencil, but a gun. He shot five bullets at point-blank range, killing Obregón instantly. Interrogations revealed that Tural was a Cristero, a Catholic loyalist. Six months after he killed Obregón, Tural was executed by firing squad in February 1929. After Obregón's death, a provisional president took over, but he wouldn't be in power for long. Later that same year, Plutarco Elias Callas, Obregón's former protege, established a new political party, the National Revolutionary Party, or PNR. The PNR embodied the socialist values Caius had long sought to instill into the Mexican government. 
After a few name changes and restructures, in 1946 the party adopted the name and structure it still uses today, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, or PRI. From 1934 until 2000, every Mexican president plus numerous other government officials belonged to the PRI or its predecessors. While Mexico's socialist policies were a point of tension with the United States and the PRI's unchallenged power encouraged corruption, Mexico was finally at peace. With power in the hands of a single party, the constant revolts and rebellions ended. The leaders of the revolution, including Pancho Villa and Álvaro Obregón, were dead. But finally, their dreams of a peaceful Mexico were achieved. Coming up next, we'll talk about Pancho Villa's legacy and explore how the world might look differently if Villa had never been assassinated. Now, back to the story. In 1935, the Mexican government erected a monument to General Álvaro Obregón. Along with a statue and inscriptions celebrating his military and political career, the monument displayed Obregón's right arm in a jar of formaldehyde. Obregón lost his arm during a battle with Pancho Villa's forces during the Mexican Revolution. His doctor recovered the arm from the battlefield, but was unable to reattach the limb. From there, the record becomes unclear, but somehow the arm found its way to a political aide named Aron Sain Garza, who included the unusual display as part of Obregón's monument. But Pancho Villa didn't receive his own monument until much later. His place in history is complicated. He lived and fought during a turbulent period of Mexico's history, and while his military leadership made him a leader to many, he was an enemy to many more. Villa genuinely cared for the poor, and he fought to defend their rights. In his days as a bandito, Villa ensured that the most destitute were cared for, and he continued to care for the poor during his days as a military leader and into his brief retirement. However, Villa's brutal military techniques and his willingness to provoke the ire of the United States had some bloody consequences. Many died during the decade-long Mexican Revolution. Cities burned, young soldiers lost their lives, and the political instability contributed to economic uncertainty. Villa's relationship with the poor was ultimately a mixed bag, and even today, Villa is remembered as both a liberator and a terrorist. In the decades after Villa's murder, his role in the Mexican Revolution was downplayed by those in power. While other revolutionary leaders like Álvaro Obregón and Venustiano Carranza gained political legitimacy and were honored with memorials and monuments, Villa seemed condemned to be forgotten by history. That was until 1966. By this time, Obregón and Callas, along with Villa's other enemies, were long dead. That year, the PRI finally decided to add Pancho Villa's name to the Chamber of Deputies, a memorial to the leaders of the Mexican Revolution. This move was controversial, but finally, Villa was officially recognized by Mexico's political leaders. Besides his military prowess, 
Pancho Villa also made his mark on pop culture. Between 1914, when Villa signed a contract with the Mutual Film Company, and 1915, when he ran afoul of President Woodrow Wilson and his films were pulled from U.S. theaters, Villa was a star of the silver screen. His military exploits, both genuine and staged, were screened for movie lovers across America. Even after Pancho Villa, the man, died, Pancho Villa, the icon, lived on. In 1934, American filmmakers released a movie called Viva Villa, which reignited the public's interest in the fallen warlord. Several more movies followed that often celebrated Villa, despite his murky reputation in the States. On another interesting note, Villa is also inextricably linked with the Spanish folk song, La Cucaracha. The song was written at least a century before Villa lived, but he and his men invented new verses to the popular tune, which compared their enemy, Victoriano Huerta, to a cockroach that had lost its legs. This mocking tune remains one of the most popular versions of La Cucaracha in Mexico. Even though his life was cut short, Pancho Villa shaped Mexican politics and culture in a way few people have. But what if he hadn't died in July 1923? Would his remaining years have changed the course of history? Many believe that Obregón had Villa assassinated because he feared that Villa might run in the presidential election of 1923. We can't say whether this was something Villa actually intended to do. However, if Villa had run for president, we can reasonably assume he could have captured a large amount of the popular vote. Perhaps if Villa had won the election, or even if it looked like he might come close, Callas and Obregón would have taken military action against Villa, returning Mexico to the same chaos and instability Obregón had taken such pains to prevent. Had they done so, they certainly would have turned public opinion against themselves. Even if Caius assumed the presidency at the end of the skirmish, he would have been a controversial figure, and he too might have been assassinated in office, as had so many presidents before him. On the other hand, if Pancho Villa successfully became the president of Mexico, it's nearly impossible to determine what his leadership style would be. Villa repeatedly said during his life that he didn't understand politics or policies. He recognized injustice and corruption and knew he had to oppose it. But if he was in power, even he wouldn't know exactly what to do. Villa ran his hacienda with an eye toward caring for his poor workers. He established a bank that gave low-interest loans, and he opened a school. If Villa was the president of Mexico, he might have focused on strengthening the public school system and imposing economic reforms. That being said, it's reasonable to assume that Villa would have continued to make small reforms to care for the poor, but that he wouldn't have campaigned for a socialist economic system the way Callas did shortly after Villa's death. On the international front, the United States government deeply distrusted Pancho Villa. If Villa were elected president, the relationship between Mexico and the U.S. likely would have soured. It's possible that the U.S. might have even supported Villa's rivals and instigated rebellions against his rule. 
It's even possible that a Pancho Villa presidency would have sparked a war between Mexico and the U.S. A war in the late 1920s would have been a boon to U.S. industry and may have lessened the effects of the Great Depression in the 1930s. And the after-effects of a war with Mexico may have changed the course of American involvement in World War II. If the U.S. had a stronger economy in the 30s, and if they were already mobilized for war, maybe the U.S. would have joined the fight against the Axis powers earlier. Or maybe the recent fighting would have left the United States even less inclined to get involved in another foreign war. It's difficult to predict exactly how things would have played out differently if the timing of America's entrance into World War II was changed. But if the war ended sooner, without the necessity of atomic warfare, or conversely, if the U.S. didn't enter the war at all, the entire second half of the 20th century would certainly be much different. Mexico would be much different as well. If Villa had defeated Obregón in the 1923 election, then Obregón's protégé Calles may never have had the political influence necessary to found the party that would become the PRI. It's impossible to envision where Mexico would be today without the party that controlled its federal government for over six decades. One thing is certain. If Pancho Villa had become president of Mexico, the Western world would be nearly unrecognizable today. However, it's only an assumption that Villa ever intended to run for president in the first place. In light of the fact that Obregón's men found a stockpile of weapons in Villa's hacienda, it's also possible that Villa planned to lead a rebellion instead of a political campaign, or that he'd planned to join Adolfo de la Huerta's rebellion that launched a few months after his death. Obregón's army easily put down Huerta's rebellion, but if Villa and his followers were involved in that fight, the balance of power would have shifted. Perhaps with Villa's help, Huerta would have secured a victory and become president of Mexico instead of Plutarco Elias Calles. Huerta had already served as interim president of Mexico once, during the brief period before Obregón's first term. Based on his work at that time, we can speculate on what another Huerta presidency would look like. Huerta was more conservative than Obregón. He didn't care about economic reform or the poor. In fact, it's strange that Villa would have supported him at all, except for the fact that Huerta and Villa were friends and Villa might have felt personal loyalty. However, Villa surely would have bristled under Huerta's rule, and it seems likely that if Huerta were president, it would only be a matter of time before the revolution would rise again, plunging Mexico into further years or decades of bloodshed. But maybe Villa really did mean to keep his promise to stay out of Mexican politics. Before his death, those closest to Villa seemed convinced that he was satisfied and happy in his retirement. Perhaps, if he'd survived, Villa would have lived out the final decades of his life in peace on Conatillo. He could have continued to grow corn, raise cattle, and watch from the sidelines as Mexico's politics played out. The weapons cache at Conatillo would have sat unused, except when necessary for self-defense. During the Mexican Revolution, four generals arose as its leaders. All four of those men, Pancho Villa, Álvaro Obregón, 
Emiliano Zapata and Venustiano Carranza were assassinated within a few years of one another. Had Villa lived to be the last survivor of the four leaders, he would have held a great deal of influence over Mexican politics, even as a private citizen. What that influence would have looked like, however, is harder to predict. Pancho Villa lived during a major transitional time in history. The Mexican Revolution was a fulcrum that shaped not only Mexico's culture, but that of the entire world. We might never know how the world would be different had Villa lived. But we do know that even though Villa died, his spirit of revolution lived on, changing Mexico and the world for a century after he died. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find more episodes of Assassinations as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Assassinations was written by Angela Jorgensen and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. (laughs) ¶¶